had already called me to be your pastor. We were getting ready to go, packing everything up and leaving town to come up here. But our, our church in Lincoln, Zion, had planted two daughter churches, right? Spun off two church plants, so there were three PCA churches in Lincoln. We're going to be doing the same thing here, by the way. That's what we're up to. We want to be planting daughter churches, too. They had planted two daughter churches, and the pastor of one of our daughters, he was on sabbatical, just like I was on sabbatical until a couple of weeks ago. So his assistant pastor was filling in the pulpit, like Pastor Luke was filling our pulpit for the fall. And that assistant pastor's daughter, Amelia, who I think was about 10, she died suddenly. He just lost his daughter. And he needed to not be preaching anymore. So I jumped in and filled the pulpit right before we moved up here, and I preached Jonah. So when we got to Jonah chapter 2, because of the message of the text, it really hit that congregation in a different way. And, and I, think it, I think the Spirit used it to be helpful to them in their mourning and in their grief because of what this chapter is about. And we've had some mourning and grief here in the last few months, too, as we've lost some people close to us. So would that the Spirit use this text in the same way to bring you comfort in the name of Christ, even in your mourning and your grief, because of what the message of the passage is. And I'm not going to tell you the message of the passage, because otherwise you'll stop listening to the sermon, which we will start now, and you're going to find out the message of the passage, which I think applies very well to people who are in the midst of mourning and grief, as well as the rest of life. So the story of the gospel, this is the beginning of a sermon, by the way, <laughs> the story of the gospel it's a story of reversal, isn't it? The good news about salvation in Christ. Because the gospel is a story in which everything you expect gets turned upside down. The people who deserve death because they're sinners and rebels get life forever. The perfect son of God, very God of very God, who has been living forever in unbroken fellowship with the Father and the Spirit, he dies a criminal's death, and he trades himself for us. That's upside down. And then more upside down stuff happens, and that death is undone, and the curse of the garden is reversed, and Jesus comes back in resurrection life. Who comes back from the dead? And the grave is defeated. And then people who are outside God's covenant and can never enter into it, even nations who live far away, are called and brought near and reconciled to God through the cross of Christ. The story of the gospel is one of reversal. It's one where everything is upside down. What's the main narrative technique of the book of Jonah? Do you remember from last week? What's Jonah's main storytelling method? We saw it over and over and over and over last week. At every point in chapter 1 of Jonah, it seemed like nothing was going the way it was supposed to. It was a story of reversal. Nobody was doing what you would expect, right? It was a, did that really just happen? Kind of chapter. God tells his prophet Jonah to go to Nineveh, and Jonah goes the opposite direction to Tarshish. It's like, did that really just happen? God, instead of filling Jonah with his ruach, his spirit, throws his ruach as a wind that Jonah to pin into the wall to stop him from running away. And you're like, did that really just happen? That's not what normally you do with a prophet. Did we really see pagan sailors understand the storm as divine while Jonah was snoring in the bottom of the boat? Remember the Septuagint adds the verb snored to help you capture the how, how apathetic 
Jonah is. Did we really see Gentile sailors risk their very lives to save Jonah after he tells them it's his fault they're about to die? Who does that? Did that really just happen? And then we see Jonah go overboard into the storming sea. One of God's beloved people, you might say one of God's sons, the Son of God, goes over the side of the boat takes sin and wrath on him, he goes down to his death, and men from every tribe, tongue, and nations in the boat, the sailors, are saved. Did we really see that? Did that really just happen? And then at the end of the story, we get a little temple floating in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea as God's presence is with these people from every nation as they are now worshiping him. Really? Did that just happen? over and over and over. But should we be surprised? The gospel is a story of reversal, of unexpected, of surprising, of amazing grace. The gospel reminds us over and over again of texts like Ephesians 2 from Confession this morning. Because salvation doesn't belong to us. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and he dispenses it on whom he chooses. So last week, remember at the end of Jonah 1, we end Jonah's going bloop, 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 and he's slipping down below the waves, right? The shavar, the waves are watching over, washing over the boat as the Hebrew even sounds like a storm. And Jonah is slipping below the waves. And this week we find, though, that Jonah hasn't left the story, even though he's drowned. God isn't finished with Jonah yet. Because both the sailors and the prophet were under the wrath of the storm, and both the sailors and the prophet need to be saved. God saved the sailors by trading Jonah for them, and a figure of something that comes up later in the Bible. Now Jonah's representing someone else. Now he's representing people, the people of God who need to be saved themselves. Jonah saves the sailors by trading Jonah for them. Now Jonah's going to save Jonah. God, sorry, God is going to save Jonah. There we go. And as we begin chapter 2, we're going to see Jonah still around, though he's sinking fast. We're going to hear a rather remarkable prayer come out of his mouth, especially given the way he's been acting so far in this book. So we're going to begin our text at chapter 1, verse 17. I think the chapter division's in the wrong place, and this is actually the beginning of the second part of the book. This is where scene 2 opens. So before we do that, though, we have two things. Remember, lots of twos. Jonah 2, Ephesians 2, two parts to the chapter, two parts to confession. Two things we should know about Jonah 2 before we read it that affect the passage. And I'd like you to have these two things in mind. We're going to read the whole sermon text together in just a second. But first, two things we need to know. First, you need to notice what kind of text it is. What kind of text? It's probably lined in your Bible differently than chapter 1. So this is poetry. It's poetry. Poetry is different than narrative. It brings its story different. It brings its theology, its message differently than story does. Poems communicate their message, their theology, in the pictures they paint, in the images they have. So we want to pay attention to the pictures. right? We've learned this in the book of Psalms. It's very similar. But notice this is not the book of Psalms. And this is the second thing we want to notice. This is not the, no, this is still the first thing we want to notice. I've changed my mind. Otherwise, we'd be noticing three things, and that wouldn't go well with my two. So let's just stick with, this is still part of the first thing. So we're noticing that it's poetry, and we're noticing it's not the book of Psalms. What does that mean? That means that it's not a collection, a whole book of poetry. 
right? It's a poem stuck into the middle of a story. It's a poem stuck into the middle of a story, and that's a special case scenario in the Bible. Remember what we learned in Genesis as we've gone through it together these last few years? Genesis, one of the things Genesis does is teaches us to read the Bible well. It does a lot of things. That's one of them. It teaches, here's how the story is going to be told. In Genesis, we see lots of poems stuck into the middle of the story, and we learn that this is what it means. When you see a poem stuck into the middle of a story, almost always the poem makes explicit the message of the story, in case you miss it. So if you're not sure what the story is about, read the poem. The poem will tell you what the story is about. That's what it's for. So we need to keep that in mind as we read Jonah 2, a poem in the middle of a story. This chapter will tell us the point of the whole book if we pay attention to it. That's the first thing. Second thing, remember what we usually ask of a psalm? Because this is a poem like psalms or poems. What's usually the first thing in the summer when we go through psalms? What do we ask first? How many parts is it? Good job. It's not even summer. It's the middle of winter. How many parts is the poem? We're not going to quite ask that here, though there, there are two, basically. Four if you count the beginning and the end. We're going to look at something else, because this has a special structure that's more than just parts. This is written like a chiasm. It's a chiasm. That means it's shaped like an X. I want you to look at your sermon outline bulletin, and I've outlined it so you can see it. I want you to look, see the letters and the numbers on the side of the left margin there? You see how it says A1 at the top, swallowed up? Look at the bottom. You can draw lines between these if you would like with your pen or pencil. See A2 at the bottom? A1 and A2 go together. Now go in a little bit. See B1 and B2? Those two parts go together. See C1 and C2? See that? And then see D1 and D2? It's a mirror. The first half of the poem mirrors the second half of the poem. That's a chiasm. And here's what a chiasm does when you see one. These are, these are not an infrequently used tool in Scripture. The chiasm points like an X to what's right at the middle. Right? What's right at the middle. That's the most important part of the whole poem. This poem is, every part of this poem is pointing right to the dead center of Jonah's prayer, saying this is what matters most. Right, so now put that together with the other thing. The dead center of the poem is what matters most. And the poem is put into a story and it's saying this is what the story's about. So if we get the dead center of the poem, we've got the whole book of Jonah. Does that make sense? That's why we need to have those two things in mind as we read this. Because right now we're at the heart of the theology of this book. And we're ready to read it now. So if you'd stand as we read together, please. You can open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 2. It's page 774 in the Pew Bible. It's in the Minor Prophets, which are close to the New Testament. It's right after Obadiah. This is the word of the Lord, starting in chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows have passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. 
Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry ground. Let's pray. Father, Son, Spirit, we have confessed that we today were dead in our transgressions and sins and underneath your wrath like all of the rest of mankind. And we have heard, but God, because of his great chesed and his great love, you have made us alive even when we were dead in transgressions. We have acknowledged that we are your workmanship, that you have created us and you have good works for us to do in Christ. Use this text to this end this morning. Bring those who do not yet know Jesus to life in him. Bring those who do know Jesus to good work in him. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So let's keep going. In Jonah, Jonah's going down. Remember, that's the direction he's been going the entire book. Down, 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 down. He's been going no other way but down. Down from Jerusalem, down to the seaport, down into the ship, down to the bottom of the ship, and now down to the bottom of the ocean. But the maker of the heavens and the earth isn't done with Jonah. Jonah is his. He's chosen Jonah from before the creation of the world to be one of his own people. So God catches Jonah, just like he caught him with the wind in the first chapter. Now he catches him with a great fish, which is a clever wordplay in Hebrew. Remember, we've said this at the beginning. Jonah's not a book about a fish. But the fish is a bit player. He's doing something, right? We need the fish. He does a critical role, but it's not about him. But there's a fun word play in Hebrew. There's a lot of them in this book. This is one of them. The word, the letters for the word great, remember the word great shows up 14 times in Jonah. Great, 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 great. There's all kinds of great things going on, starting with the great city Nineveh. The letters for the word great, if you take them and rearrange them, spell the word fish. Isn't that kind of fun? So dog gadol. Great fish, dog gadol, great fish. So in Hebrew, a fish is a dog. I don't know if there's any theological significance to that. Probably not. But the dog gadol, God says, go, get my prophet, swallows him. And now that Jonah is swallowed, he starts his three-day journey of the book. And he finally begins to pray. And you say, oh, it's about time, right? The sailors wake him up and say, pray, ask your God for help, and Jonah will not do it. He's not going to talk to God. He's not going to cry. I mean, God might have a direction finder, right, on his little radio. So if Jonah starts praying, God, oh, there he is. I found him. Right? He doesn't want to text because people are going to triangulate the position of his mobile phone. But now, now that he's in the fish, now he's ready to pray. He's at the utter extreme of life, and he prays from the dog Gadol, and his prayer is going to trace his three-day journey, and we're going to take his three-day journey with him in his prayer. So let's start at the beginning of his prayer. It starts in verse 1 of chapter 2. 
or two, sorry, verse two of chapter two. It says, coming from Jonah, really, this is amazing. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, you heard my voice. Look at his confidence as he starts his prayer. Think about where he's starting off in life. He's been running the whole time. And yet he starts with exactly what we've been hoping to hear from him. He knows God is a God who hears people who cry out to him. Remember Psalms 116 that we read at the beginning of the service? He knows God will answer him. He's finally praying. You can see he does actually know who God is. The God who made the heavens and the earth. The I am a Hebrew. He does know him. Even as he's going down to Sheol. Even as he's headed down to death. He is certain that God is the God who hears and responds to the prayers of people who cry out to him. So he talks about his prayer being answered even as he starts. You heard me. He hasn't even finished praying. God hasn't finished answering, but he's so sure that God will hear him. He starts off by saying, you've already answered my prayer. Because that's the kind of God he knows. So he does know his God. He's just been rebelling against him. And now Jonah's going to pray his way down to the bottom of the sea in the first half of the poem. We're going to look at two pictures, remember? Poems carry images, carry, carry message, carry theology and pictures. Two pictures the text paints for us. It paints more than two. We're just looking at two of them. Look at the picture of verse 3. We'll read it again. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and breakers or your billows have passed over me. There's the first picture, and it's wrath. Wrath. Who's responsible for the storm? God hurled the storm at Jonah to stop him from running away. Who's responsible for Jonah being in the sea in the first place? God. Who's responsible for him drowning? God. God's wrath was lifted by the sailors, and he traded Jonah's life for theirs. For you cast me into the deep. It's the same kind of picture you find like in Exodus 15. In Exodus 15, there's the song of Moses, the song of deliverance, the song of people being cast into the sea, except there it's Israel's passing through the waters and coming out. We've talked about that in the Christian formation class in reference to baptism. And the Egyptians get buried in the water. Which spot is Jonah putting himself in? Is he Israel being saved or Egypt being drowned? Here. He's Egypt being drowned. He clearly identifies what we said at the beginning of confession. Dead in transgressions and sins in which I've been living. Just like everybody else. He identifies himself as an enemy of God. That is a pointed reversal because Jonah seems to be admitting Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. But here's the good news, right? The same God who casts him into the deep of the sea is the same God who can rescue him, which is the whole point of him praying in the first place. And he's sure God will do it because he knows who God is. Because he's not actually praying Exodus 15, although it sounds kind of like it. That's not the text he's praying. You know what text he's praying? Do you recognize the text? Have you heard it before? He's praying Psalms 42, He's praying the book of Psalms. 
In Psalms 42, in its context, is a cry to God from suffering and from taunts of people saying, where is your God? Psalms 42 is a psalm longing to be returned to God's house of worship. But in verses 6 and 7 of the psalm, the psalmist is in turmoil and writes, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have passed over me. That's wrath. Just like the Egyptians experienced as the enemies of God. This is what Jonah is experiencing. It's what the psalmist's life looked like. But that's not where Psalms 42 ends. Psalms 42 continues, By day the Lord commands his chesed, his steadfast love. At night the Lord's song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. And three times in Psalms 42 and 43, which we, you guys went through this summer, you remember they go together. They're kind of a unit. Three times we see why are you so cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. I will again praise him. He's my salvation. And now in an echo, what sounds like Hosea, and he's my God. Remember Hosea? God buys his people back. Those who are not my people, I'm going to say, you're my people. And you're going to respond by saying, and you're my God. Jonah is praying to that God. The same God whose wrath is upon him is the only God who can save him. And he's praying to a God who particularly loves saving people who are just like this, hopeless, helpless. Jonah's praying Psalms 42 to the God who runs towards sinners to buy them back. That's the first picture, wrath. The second picture is Jonah is going down in the first half of the poem is death. Death. Verses 4 through 6, the first half of 6. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again on your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed over me forever. Jonah is dying. He's drowning. He's being separated from where God is. And his last glance as the waves take him and he goes underwater, he looks over his shoulder again at the place he's been running away from the whole time. He's been running away from where God is, from God's presence, from God's people, from anything to do with him. I'm leaving Jerusalem. I'm leaving the temple. I'm going down, 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 down. And his last glance over his shoulder is, I want that again. And his last glance is not hopeless. Did you notice the language again? He knows the God he's talking to. I have been driven away from your sight, but I will see your dwelling place again. How can he possibly have that kind of confidence after the life we've just watched him live? He's a rebel. He's a sinner. He's the only prophet in the Bible who does exactly the opposite of what he's told to do. No one else does that. There's nobody worse than him. He's praying Psalms 31. Another psalm. What an amazing coincidence. He's praying Psalms 31. And that has the same kind of confidence Jonah does. We covered this two summers ago. Psalms 31 says, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas of mercy. 
when I cried to you for help. So as Jonah goes down to death, he's not struggling, he's not fighting, he's not asleep, and he's not running away. Like the Psalms, his eyes have turned and they are fixed firmly on the God of Israel, on Yahweh, his Lord, his God, and what he... He, he is sure will be what Psalms 31 says, hope in God, I will again praise him. He's my salvation. He's my God. So how do you praise God when you're dead? What is it Jonah is looking forward to so confidently that he can praise God even if he dies? What is going on? Right? This is another one. Is this really happening? This whole book is upside down. It's one reversal after another, and now death takes Jonah in verse 6. And the water is above him, the water is around him, and you might have noticed this interesting image. He has plants wrapped around his head like a crown. Did you catch that? He has plants, something made out of plants, wrapped around his head as though he's wearing a crown here of seaweed. Later, it might be made of something pokier. That's interesting. He has a crown on his head made out of plants. He's dying. He's at the roots of mountains. He's shaking the images of prison bars, right? It's like he's in an underwater prison, shaking the bars, and his last breaths are going out of his mouth. Bloop, bloop, bloop. And he's dead as God's wrath on sin takes him down and closes over him. So a side note, does Jonah's prayer so far, recounting this three-day journey that starts by going down to the grave, does that sound familiar to you at all? If you know your Bible, I hope you read your Bible and recognize perhaps some of what's going on here. You may have heard it before. We've heard him quote Psalms 42. We've heard him quote Psalms 31. Do any other lines of his prayer sound familiar? I can't tell. No one's nodding or shaking their heads. Do any other lines of his poem sound familiar? Well, they should. Every single line in chapter 2 of his poetic prayer, every single clause, every single phrase, every word, the whole chapter, it's a giant quotation of the book of Psalms. All of it. The whole prayer. It's like he's taken the whole book of Psalms and put it together in one chapter summary kind of way. There's nothing in here that isn't said in Psalms. He quotes, he says nothing on his own. He just prays the Bible. As God's own prophet, as God's own son, goes over the side of the ship and takes the wrath of God down on himself so that other people are saved, as he trades himself so that Gentile sailors can be saved and there's a little temple in the middle of the Mediterranean where they're worshiping him and he goes on a three-day journey that starts with going down to death. On his lips are the book of Psalms. And so you should probably be asking yourself at this point, does anyone else in Scripture ever do this kind of thing? Do we see this happen again? Does anyone else die a death that trades and substitutes and take a three-day journey and pray the book of Psalms as they start? Like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in Psalms 22? 
or into your hands I commit my spirit in Psalms 31. The further we read in Jonah, the more it seems to me that there's more than one story going on in this text at the same time. There's the story of Jonah, and then there's some other story that's a lot like the story of Jonah that's being told through this text. Well, back, back to where we were. Jonah just died. And that story here and that other story that's being told later that sounds a lot like this, neither one ends in death. Death takes Jonah in prison at the bottom of the sea in the grave, except that's not where his prayer ends. We're only halfway through. Where are we in the poem? Have you noticed? Where are we? We're right dead center in the middle. This is the middle of the chiasm where he hits bottom and then something else happens, right? And don't forget that the middle of the chiasm is also the middle of the poem, which is the telling us the theology of the book. So if you want to get Jonah, this is what Jonah's about right here in the middle of the chiasm. What is Jonah about? Let's read the other half of verse 6. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Death is not the end for those who belong to God. Death is not the end of Jonah. What is? What's the end of, for those who belong to God in Christ? It's resurrection. Resurrection is the end of everything for those who belong to Christ. Life forever. Not death, life. That's what the book of Jonah is about. It's the central theology of this story in a book that makes its living on everything going upside down and nothing being the way that you would expect. This is the granddaddy reversal of all of them. This is a book about life coming from death. It's about resurrection. What Jonah's been doing nothing, he's going down, 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 because Jonah can't do anything else. He's trapped. He's dead in sin and transgressions. But, but God, who is rich in chesed, right? The word mercy in the Greek is the equivalent for the word chesed in the Hebrew in Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in chesed, but God who loves us with an incomparable love, but God is not the one who's going to let Gentile sailors perish in the storm, but will trade his son for them. God is not going to let the last word have with his, with his son. Death will not be the end of him either. After a three-day journey, day journey down, God's raising Jonah back up, back to life, back to resurrection. Because that's who God is. Notice the sequence. This matters. Life does not come by avoiding suffering. Life does not come by circumventing death. Life comes by going through suffering. Life comes by going into the grave and back out of it again. That's where life comes from. This is the upside-down way that God brings salvation to his people. It's the way his kingdom works. A rebellious prophet, swallowed by a fish, saved from the sea, brought back from the pit to life again. 
It's the gospel according to Jonah. And now there are two pictures in the second half of the poem. Now Jonah is coming back up, right? The first half of the poem's down. The second half of the poem, for the first time in the story, he's finally headed in the right direction. He's going up. Two pictures as he comes up. The first picture is appeal. Appeal. Jonah cries out, praying about people who refuse to come to his God for help like he has, rebel that he is. God answered his prayer. And now he's saying, oh God, the people who won't ask you, they keep their idols of vanity. They hold on to their idols of emptiness. They forsake their steadfast love. And there's another wordplay going on here in a chapter full of them. I wanted to point this one out as well. The word that describes idols, how is it translated in ESV? Vain idols or idols of emptiness. That's a word that we learned in Ecclesiastes together. Hevel. Hevel. That's what describes idols. It's emptiness, vanity, mist. You try to grab it and you can't get a hold of it. Anything that you turn to other than the one true living God, your wealth, your wisdom, your work, pleasure, position, power, it's all Hevel. Hold on to your idol of emptiness and you forsake your chesed, steadfast love, that could be yours if you would but turn to the God who saves. You're holding on to mist, and you will drown and die. You grab onto the God of Israel and cry out for help, and he sends his son to save you. Hevel or chesed, that's the first picture, is appeal. Appeal. Appeal not to an idol of Hevel, but to the God of Chesed who saves people through his son, Jesus Christ. And the second picture in the poem, as Jonah finishes coming up, is participation. Participation, and glad participation at that, which is encouraging coming from the sky. Jonah ends up right back where we expected him to be at the beginning of the book, but it's taken a three-day journey of death to life to get him there. He ends the poem, look at verse 10. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Finally, he gets it. The Lord, the God who has made the sea and the dry ground, he owns salvation. It belongs to him, and so he can dispense it wherever he wants to, whether it's to idol-worshiping Israel, the first people Jonah took his message of grace to, whether it's to someone... In a sinking ship, a ship thinking about sinking, who's a pagan sailor. In a storm of wrath, God can decide to save them. He owns salvation. It might even be to a rebellious prophet who spent his whole time running away from the mission he was called to. And ends up at the bottom of the sea and God saves him. It might even be, now this is a crazy thought, so stick with me. It might even be that God wants to save his worst enemies on earth, the Assyrians, by sending one of his prophets to their capital city, Nineveh. But that, that's crazy, right? We hate them. We always spit when we say Assyrians. We, we hate the Assyrians. We don't want to see them saved. Surely God is not able to reach them with something that sounds like the gospel. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He owns it. And he dispenses it as he graciously and mercifully chooses. 
So Jonah's now ready. Jonah's ready. He's where we thought he would be at the beginning of the book. He's ready for the mission that he's been called to, the good works God has prepared in advance for him to do, Ephesians 2.10. He needs to be saved himself before he can go. And now that he's been saved, he's ready to be sent. So he gets bleh, vomited up. Did you like that sound effect? Did I get everybody's attention with that one? Bleh, he gets vomited up on the beach, ready to deploy to the mission field. You see, when Jonah is asked in chapter 1 what his occupation is, do you remember his answer? What do you do for a living, Jonah? And he says, I am a Hebrew, which doesn't sound like an answer to the question until you understand that just being a Hebrew means he exists to worship God and glorify him forever, right? To glorify God and enjoy him forever and to call other people to do that. That's why I am a Hebrew means. I'm here to worship and I'm here to call others to do the same. He might be a Hebrew by physical descent, but now he seems to be a Hebrew by sharing the faith of Abraham, like Romans 9 talks about. Jonah has to die. God has to raise him back up. He's been saved. Now he's ready to be sent. He can speak in faith. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's his job. Now we're going to get to see next week what happens when Jonah does what he's told to do. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and he'll dispense it as he so chooses, mercifully, graciously. And that's our commission from this text. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And it's going to come in two parts this morning. The same two parts as Jonah's prayer, actually. The same two parts as Ephesians chapter 2 that we did in confession, that we read together. You might be here this morning and you need to admit that you need Jesus to save you from your sins. You're in the first half of Jonah's prayer. You're in the first half of Ephesians 2. Wrath, death, these are what await you apart from Christ. That's what's true. But Jonah's story and Jesus' story do not end in death. They end in life. And yours need not end in death either. Your story may also end in life if you will but come in faith to Jesus as Lord and Savior. That might be your commission today. You might need to come and pray Psalms 31. I hope in God and I will yet praise Him. He is my salvation. He is my God. This text is calling you to repent and come to the God of mercy and love and grace in the name of Christ. If we could talk to you more about that after the service, we would love to. Tom, Kevin, Patrick, and myself will be around here if you want to talk more. We would love to open the Bible with you and talk about Jesus. The other part of your commission could be this. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to admit that Jesus has saved you to send you to others who need to be saved too. You're in the second half of Jonah's prayer, the second half of Ephesians 2, where the two pictures there are appeal and participate. Appeal and participate. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You're in the next half, you're in the second half of this for grace where you've been saved through faith. And then verse 10, we've been created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Maybe you need to act in faith this morning to participate in God's Make Disciples nation, mission to the nations and speak the gospel message to those around you who need to hear it and be saved. Your job is to speak. That's just your job. You don't have to save anybody. That's the Holy Spirit's job. 
Don't try to be the Holy Spirit. It never turns out well. Just be you and speak. And if you're not sure how to do that, let me give you a suggestion. Just tell your story. God didn't make you to be silent. As I said before the offering, he didn't save us to sit on our bums. He created you to sing and to live and to speak like Psalms does. He's brought me up from the pit. So if you're not sure how to start speaking the gospel, just tell your story. Just tell your story. How he saved me. I would do it if I were you. I'm going to give you, this is not an evangelism class, but I'm going to give you a little quick, short, here's how I would do it. Three parts. Three parts in your testimony. Have a part, here's what I was like before Christ. Here's how I came to believe in Jesus. And here's what life is like now. Before, belief, after. Weave a text into it. Give the Holy Spirit something to work with. The Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and points people to the Son of God. So make sure the Word of God is infused in your story. I would recommend Ephesians 2. It works really well because it has all three parts on it. Just memorize 2, 1 through 10 and use it. Here's how I was dead. Here's how God called me to belief. He gave me the gift of faith. Here's what life is like now. Just tell your story and then ask the person you're talking to, where are you at? What's your story? I'd love to hear. Okay? Your commission is one of two parts, come and believe or go and proclaim. That's what the book of Jonah is asking us to do. Let's pray. Salvation belongs.